And so we're going to begin with uh, maybe a recap of where we were. Last week, uh, Dr. Carl Carr talked about how the wisdom of God in the gospel is what unites us. And we talked about maybe the difference in, in knowledge and in wisdom. There are things that we might know, but when we begin to apply them is when they begin to become wisdom, where we begin to live wisely, when the knowledge that we have acquired is expressed in the way that we live, particularly the understanding of the gospel that Jesus saved us, that God looked upon us as rebellious and sinful men and women, and that he, through the blood of his own son, drew us near to him by really his own work. That we didn't earn that affection. We didn't kind of spit shine our lives until they were pretty enough for, for God to say, okay, I'll take that one and make him my own. But this was God's initiative towards us as sinful men and women based solely upon his affection and care for us. Not based on whether or not we were lovable. And when that becomes kind of embedded in our understanding of our identity, what you'll see is we've laid the groundwork for people of God to walk in unity. Because we understand that we're all broken and busted. We understand that it's the grace of God that has done whatever good has happened in our lives. And and when you do that, kind of arrogance is replaced with humility. Legalism is replaced with grace. And you create an atmosphere that love transcends a whole lot of problems. And we begin to learn to walk in unity with one another. Towards the end of that section that Carl preached, He reminds them that he's doing what he's doing so that they will not lose heart. And and I think he kind of keys on something that's very important as we move forward is that unity in the body of Christ is hard. It's a struggle. It's a struggle for us to love one another. Even just think of your own families. You're going to be getting together with them at Christmas time in mass quantities. Now, Family, uh, just a few family members at once is one thing. But the entire group together under one roof takes on a whole new dynamic. And many of you will have very interesting Christmases this year. I'm just warning you in advance. You're going to have an uncle enjoy too much eggnog and act crazy. You're going to have to explain to your children what that means. You're going to have all, some of you will have even more difficult explanations to give to your children. If you have children, some of you have had children grow up and leave and then they come home with different expectations, hairstyles, potentially tattoos and all sorts of things you didn't know. And you're going to learn about that at Christmas. Feliz Navidad. (laughs) Christmas is a time we gather the family and in those moments, tension is generally common, right? We have to kind of figure out, okay, how are we going to we just get through the holiday? You see that. It's hard to love other people. And and the reason is they're sinful and we're sinful. Which means we bring all sorts of baggage into the interaction. They do things that are ridiculously frustrating. And we do things that are ridiculously frustrating. And we're impatient to them and they're impatient to us. Because loving other people's hard. The Apostle Paul is fully aware of that when he begins to talk to the church about unity. He recognizes that it's a struggle, that there's the potential to lose heart. So there's a struggle to love one another. In addition, there's a struggle for the mission that he gave the church. That the mission that the church has is that all generations and all peoples would hear the good news of Jesus Christ is a difficult mission. Jesus told us it would be. He says, if the world hated me, they'll hate you also. He says, you're going to go and tell them about Jesus and you'll be persecuted and delivered up. 
So it, it's not like it's a bed of roses. We're just going to go kind of skipping through life, uh, uttering kind of cute statements about Jesus and the whole world's going to high five us and life's going to be roses. That's not the picture Jesus gives at all. He says, this is going to be difficult. This is going to take a long time. It's going to require power beyond yourself. The struggle. But those are really the two things that keep the church together. The two ingredients ultimately for the church to walk in unity is a love for one another and a commitment to the mission Jesus gave us. If we stop loving one another, then our witness to the world won't work. So we, we really can't have this idea of, okay, I'm committed to the mission, but I don't like other Christians. I don't like the church, but I love Jesus. I want other people to come to faith in Jesus. It doesn't work because when they come to faith in Jesus, the Bible says they've been entered into the church. So you liked them until they became a Christian, and now I don't like them anymore. It, it breaks down quickly. Additionally, Jesus says that the way Christians love one another is going to be the most effective witness to the world. He says it in John 13, and he says it in John 17, that our love for one another, our unity, will be the testimony that we are his and that the Father has sent him. So we we can't separate these two things. That is what brings unity in the church. Paul recognizes it's a struggle, and he doesn't want him to lose heart. So we begin now in chapter 3, verse 14. Because it's a struggle, Paul says this, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. The strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We see a few things here. And we want to begin with this, is that unity in the church begins with the power of God. I want you to see this, is that Paul says it's going to be difficult, it's going to be a struggle, you're going to lose heart. And in response to that, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Lord because of that. So what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, I see you struggling, I know it's going to be hard. And so Paul's response is one of prayer and pleading before God to strengthen and establish and build up this body of believers. He recognizes that this is the work of God. And that's because this kind of unity and sacrificial love isn't natural to us. Self-promotion is natural to us. Tribalism, where we kind of have an us versus them mentality, that's natural. But a unity in the body of Christ that transcends economics, ethnicity, background, and education. That kind of unity where what we have in Jesus is more important than everything else that we don't share is hard. It's unnatural. And so Paul's fight for the unity of the church is a battle that he wages on his knees in prayer. 
And you're going to see this throughout Paul's ministry. He is not going to say we pray and then we do ministry. He's going to establish the fact that ministry begins and is sustained by and through prayer. He even talks about men kind of laboring for others in prayer. He tells them to pray ceaselessly. So he fights the battle in prayer, pleading with God, because Paul recognizes something that this verse has as its undercurrent, is that the source for power for the spiritual life for the Christian individually and for the church collectively is not our own, but rather comes from God. When the church is established, it, it, it happens not coincidentally with the, for the, for the kind of the first time the Spirit of God being poured out in this new way. On the church. He does that in, in Acts chapter 2, but it's, it's a follow-up of a promise that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses throughout Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And what Jesus has done is establish the marching orders for the church. Also, it's the outline for the book of Acts as they walk faithfully under the direction of the Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit of God sent upon the church to enable them to be in the church and do what the church is to do. And not only is it kind of the foundational source for everything that the church is called to do, the Spirit's empowerment was the, was the source of strength for Jesus' ministry here on earth. Now that sounds strange for us to think about because Jesus is the eternal Son of God. The Bible tells us, though, that when Jesus came to earth, that he set aside the function of many of his divine attributes. He didn't lose them, but rather willfully kind of chose not to use them. So things like Jesus being all-knowing because he is very God. Things like Jesus uh, being omniscient in all places at once because he's very God. He, he set that aside. And what he did rather was walk with the empowerment and leading of the Holy Spirit. I want to show you just two places that, that you'll find this in the Scriptures. The first is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, after his baptism, was led by the Holy Spirit and went out into the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Jesus was then filled with the Holy Spirit. Theological term for this is the kenosis, if you're into Greek terms. And, and it's this idea that Jesus, being fully God, in taking on our humanity and its weakness, humbled himself and willfully chose not to exercise some of his divine attributes. He had them, but he set them aside. And he lived his life in perfect obedience and righteousness by the empowering work of the Spirit of God. Being led by the Spirit, being Filled by the Spirit. And then when he leaves, he sends the Spirit to the church to empower and strengthen us. So, so I want you to see this. Paul is pleading with God to build up the church because he recognizes that the church cannot build itself, but that the Spirit of God has to. So when he's praying for the church to be built up and strengthened by the power of God. He's praying for the church to be filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I want to just kind of pause because we don't even say Spirit-filled much. Like the Bible says it. But we tend to not use that phrase because it often is used, and if you're not familiar with this, God bless you, and if you are, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It is used to describe all sorts of things that we would say, that's a little crazy. 
Now, now there's disagreements on particular issues of theology, and we don't go in, in, into everything. But, but when, when the church environment feels a lot like a circus, and, and that has the label spirit filled, immediately we go, we, we're not that. And so I've actually been in conversations with guys where we say, we want to be a spirit-led, spirit-filled church. And then we go, but we're not that. Because that kind of moniker has been grabbed. Kind of like the rainbow was a symbol of God's grace. And it's kind of been hijacked. We've let this phrase go. But this is a defining characteristic of the church. We should be filled and led by the Spirit of God. So we don't be afraid to say that. Because it might bring up, you know, depictions in your mind of some guy in Appalachia with a snake. It's... It's not what we're going for. But we do believe that all things that we're going to do in obedience to Christ and faithfulness to Christ to advance the cause of Christ are going to be done under the leadership and empowerment and filling of the Spirit of God. Jesus promises to send the Spirit. And one of the amazing things when we talk about the power that's at work in us is that Jesus in the Gospel of John tells us that it's better for us that he leave and go to heaven and the Spirit come. I want you to look at John chapter 16, verse 7. It says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So I want you to think about things. Most of us, if we had a a, a two-choice option here, either we have the empowering, filling, indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, or we have Jesus present in the room with us physically i mean he's right here uh he's preaching not me that's a plus but but if we if we're to ask ourselves those questions jesus here in the room with us or the spirit of god indwelling and empowering us jesus says it's your advantage that i go away and that the spirit empower you and indwell you that's what jesus said and you think about that One of, one of the reasons, if you want to ask why is that, is that, is that the sending of the Spirit of God represents God doubling down in His desire to walk with His people. Maybe you just bear with me a brief history of God's interaction with humanity. In the garden, before the fall, it's just Adam and Eve. and it says, The Bible says that God walked with them in the cool of the day. Which right away, you know this wasn't in Texas because it was cool in the day. It says God was present with them. They enjoyed interaction with him and relationship with him. But sin entered into the picture and that relationship was shattered. But God is a gracious God and he continues to interact with his people. He calls men to him. He sends messengers to them. But it's sporadic interaction with God. And then God calls the people of Israel and his glory dwells with them for a season. Right? You, you have in the story of the Exodus this 
pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud that's present. And you have the establishment of the tabernacle and then the temple where the very presence of God's glory in some kind of majestic way. We don't understand. We do know that it was generally scary because the people didn't want to even go up or touch the mountain. And they told Moses, look, God spoke to us once. We don't want that. You talk to God and you let us know what he says. We'll be fine. Then Jesus comes. And he's not this, this kind of scary sense of glory and awe. He's someone you can interact with. Someone who hugged and prayed for and blessed children. Someone who taught people the truth. Someone who, who flipped over temple uh, tables when he thought they were ripping off the poor and making the worship of God uh, uh, industry. But he was, he was present. You could interact with him. You could kind of talk with him. And, and, and here's the thing, we say, well, how is it better than that? Because here's, here's what happens when Jesus ascends. He sends the Spirit who does something amazing. He indwells the believer, which means that this, this isn't some external experience where we kind of, we can go talk to Jesus about our problem, but rather, uh, the Spirit of God is present in the believer. We don't have to go to Him. He's here. He's he's present with us. He's empowering us. He's not just giving us advice when we have an issue. He's strengthening us and establishing us so that we can be faithful. So He's actually at work in us. And of course the Bible narrative continues where we find the, the end of the story is, is God establishing His order perfectly on earth and the overarching story of heaven is I will be with them and be their God and they will be with me and be my people. Is that God is at work progressively restoring what Adam lost. And the Spirit of God indwelling the believer is a step forward in God's intimacy and closeness in relationship to sinful men. And Jesus says this is for your good. He's going to lead you into all truth. The indwelling power of the Spirit is how Jesus delivers on His promise to never leave or forsake His children. That wherever we go, He's with us. He's present. He's empowering us. He's strengthening us. This unity is a gift of God that is established by His strength and power. Not ours. If this were done under our power, it wouldn't work because we don't have the capacity for it. And so Paul begins his kind of prayer for the church to to function in unity and to be built up in pleading with God for him to unleash his power within the church. Begin with that. The second thing that we want to point out is that this unity that's going to be established within the church is first by the power of God, but it's based in and rooted in the gospel of Christ. If you look with me to verses 16 through 19, you'll see this. According to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So you're going to begin with that. I want you to see a few things that, that, that are going to go on in us by the power of God. First is that whatever is going to happen is going to be according to the riches of God's glory. In Ephesians, he's already used that phrase, saying that God has poured out his love for us in Jesus, lavishing his riches upon us so we might glorify him. So it's the work of his grace for his glory in us as he 
pours out his riches upon us. So this is a ministry of God's grace that it's accessed through faith. You notice this happens by faith, not by works, but simply by our trusting in Christ that he died for us and rose again. The spirit of God begins to work in us. And third, he tells us that it is rooted and grounded in love. And and then fourth, that it leads to our understanding and enjoyment of the love of Jesus. When we talk about the love of Jesus in these verses, we can't kind of just talk about, oh, Jesus loves us. Because love is demonstrated through action. And when the Bible sets to make the case that Christ loves us and that God loves us, it always goes back to a single event in the New Testament, which is the reality that Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 says that Christ's love is seen in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First John's going to make the same argument. This is how we know what love is. So the argument that Jesus loves us and the explanation of the love of Christ can't help but kind of draw us back to what Jesus did for us where he came without any sin and endured the agony of the cross, not only the physical punishment for our sin, but the breaking in some way of his perfect loving relationship with the Father. Now, not that they were separate and distinct, but, but rather that Jesus, who had always experienced mutual love and affection and care with His Father, now experienced the full wrath of God for our sin. And so He cries out, quoting David, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus endures that for us and the joy of our salvation. And the Bible is going to always kind of press into us that that is the evidence of the love of Christ at work. So when the Bible says this is rooted in the love of Christ, this is rooted in the love of Christ that led him without sin to bear our weight on the cross. Where the righteous died for the unrighteous, where the sinless died for the sinless, where the godly died for the godless, paying our penalty. That's what Jesus did for us. And what's going to happen as we grow in unity, it's going to be rooted in that experience. Rooted and grounded also describes an ongoing relationship. Now, I'm not an expert in trees. We had a, we had a bunch of oak trees. Now we have a few. We had this drought come through. I had this tree that was dying. And so I did uh, what every guy does, which is wait three months and do nothing. And then ask for help. It's kind of like we want to drive around for four hours before we use the GPS or ask for directions because to do so would be in some way to question our own confidence and our masculine capacities. So after waiting until the tree is actually severely distressed, I say, okay, I'm going to ask for help. And so, so I go out and solicit feedback. And, and the best thing that my dad said was, have you tried watering it? Which I was like, oh, that, that's novel. It's a drought. We'll water the tree. Here's what happened to my oak tree, and we had to kill it. Is that the the roots were were damaged because we had built close to it, and and so some of the excavation for the construction of the home interfered with it. It was probably a little unstable to begin with, and then this drought hit, and it couldn't sustain the rest of the tree. And you didn't notice that the roots were bad because they were underground. What you begin to see is up at the top of the tree, the limbs drying up and, and starting to fall, which is what concerned me. Because they didn't want to fall on the children, Alicia, or the house. Everything, I'm fine if they fall. You know, we'll just put them in a pile. Eventually, we'll burn that because we live in Montgomery County and can. Um, But I didn't want it to hit anyone or anything of value. And so we had some guys actually from the church. We hired to come and cut the tree down. It was great to see them climb up the tree because they they weren't little guys. Uh, So it was a fun day for us. 
But we, we had to go through that because the root systems were damaged. And, and here's what I want you to see is that is the tree never outgrows its need for roots. The biggest trees in the world just have big roots, healthy root systems. They never outgrow it. And so when we talk about this understanding of, of our growth and unity and the expression of the Spirit's power in our lives, we, we can't just say, oh, the gospel was some past event that we heard once and we believed and now we moved on to bigger things. No, there's no bigger thing. I want you to think about this. All the mysteries of theology that if you're a bit of a Bible nerd like me, you just love and you want to answer. Uh, did you know that when Jesus returns, you'll know the answer? Like, like we're going to have any questions upon the order of events at the end times. It's all going to be answered. We're going to find out if the guys who wrote left behind were right or not. We, we don't know. But when Jesus returns, all those questions will be answered. We'll know what the, the night visions of Zechariah meant if you have any questions about that. We'll figure it out because we'll see the events play out either from here and waiting Jesus' return or from heaven, depending on who's right and how this plays out. But the questions will be answered. But we'll never know why God chose to redeem us at the cost of his own son's blood. In fact, Ephesians tells us that for the ages, for the eons, years and years and years, infinitely to come, we will be amazed at God's lavish grace upon his children. There's no deeper issue. And what it points out here is that the gospel and the good news of what Jesus has done for us has to be consistently fed and that leads into everything else that happens. That's why we don't want a Sunday to go here that we don't communicate the simple gospel message that we're sinners, that Jesus is perfect and he died for us and rose again and that faith in him is the only means of rescue. We don't ever want a Sunday to go by. I don't ever want a day in my life to go by that I don't preach that truth to myself. Because it, it begins to transform me. It is making me a more humble man. It hasn't made me a humble man, but it's at work. It is making me a more gracious man. It hasn't made me a gracious man, but it's at work. And it's at work in you if you continue to press that in. Surround yourselves with others, like in a small group, where they're going to press that in as well. But that's how it happens. Is it's rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. This is not a single past event, but a continuing experience of being rooted, being grounded, because no tree will ever outgrow its need for that. The gospel should never, ever be far from our hearts or our thoughts. That's where this is rooted. And third, we want you to see the goal. The goal of this unity, the goal of the working of the Spirit empowering the church is the unity and effectiveness of the church. It begins with a single vision. You see the end of these verses. We've read in verse 20 and 21, we talk about the glory of Christ in the church and throughout all generations. That the vision of the church, the driving impulse of us is that this Jesus who has saved us would be lifted high in worship. That's, that's it. That's why we, we, we have our purpose statement where we establish what we've called our vision, mission, and goal. So we have this purpose statement. The Tomball Bible exists to glorify Christ by making mature disciples to reach the nation. So our vision is the glory of Jesus. That's the passion, that's the motive, that's the heart we want to have in everything we do that drives us. The, the mission for us is the making of mature disciples. That working, bringing truth and sharing life with other people so that they grow to fruitfulness and maturity and really leading other people to do the same thing throughout life. And, and the goal of that is that every man, woman, and child would hear the good news of Jesus. That every nation under heaven would hear See, this single vision for the church, that Jesus would be glory. 
And one of the interesting things that you see here in Ephesians 3, and it kind of flips the script a little bit, generally speaking, when we talk about the advancement of the gospel, the glory of Christ, you see for all nations. That's the most common description of where the gospel is to expand here. But I I think there's something really special going on here in Ephesians chapter 3, because it doesn't say to every nation, it says to all generations. All generations. And this gives us really what I think is a balanced approach to life. A balanced approach to ministry. We want every nation to hear the gospel. But we recognize it may not happen this year. Oh, I would pray that we'd be the generation that would see that happen. But we don't have a guarantee on that. And so at the same time, we invest in the next generation. So that they will know the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And this is where, guys, I want to tell you that I think our church, other churches in our area, have a tremendous opportunity. Uh, I'll give you just a few simple demographics about Tom Ball. Is that the average age in Tom Ball is about 33. And, and that the only growing segment of the population over the next five years that's expected according to the census data is Children. Every other segment of the population in Tomball is expected to diminish except for children. Within a five-mile circle of our church, there are more than 90,000 children. Think about that. And I'm going to tell you that the vast majority of them are not growing up in a home where the gospel is the center of it. There's work to do. And then the next time that you you get on the freeway and you get on 249 and you start to head south into the city, I want you to look at all the construction that's happening there. Because those freeways are going to precede a boom of people and houses. And when it just the demographics of those those construction, what we expect that to be is is smaller homes, first time homes for young families. This is a tremendous opportunity for us. God has just shared this amazing thing with us. I want you to see this, is that that God is going to empower us for the glory of Christ to be made known through all generations. So the Spirit of God is at work in us. And now He's throwing us a softball because He's brought Him to us. We get to be a part of this. And it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of work. There's going to be more work than we can handle. Praise God. What, what happens when that occurs is that we begin to press into Him and recognize it's His strength and it's His power that's going to make the difference. It's time to double down. And if that didn't give you enough incentive, just, just know that statistically speaking, across the evangelical church, uh, only eight, seven to eight percent of the people who claim faith in Christ and in evangelical Christianity are actively engaged in sharing their faith or helping people grow into maturity. Actively engaged on a regular basis, less than eight percent. On top of that, someone who has been intentionally discipled, that means that, that some other person with a plan and a desire to see them move closer in their walk with Jesus has invested their life in them. Very few people have gone through that, but those who have are more than seven times more likely to do it for someone else. That's why that's a focus for us. We believe that to sustain our efforts to reach the nations, we've got to reach the generations because this isn't a sprint. This is a marathon. You're going to see some stuff in a minute when we do baptism. It's going to excite you on this front. God's at work here. And I'm asking you guys to continue with us first in prayer and then to double down as we try to make this a reality. Let me just 
bring this towards some application and close because we've got some exciting stuff coming in the service today. One is that um, prayer is where Paul began the fight. Prayer is. Uh, I shared this with our men uh, yesterday. Tonight, when kids go to bed across America, 40% of those children will go to bed in a home that their father doesn't live in. Right now, in America, the majority of children born to a mother 30 or younger are born outside of wedlock. There is work to be done. Tremendous work to be done. But the Spirit of God is here to empower us. Prayer is where we start. Prayer is where the fight is waged. Second is to remind you that your inadequacies, which we all share, are really not relevant here. Because this isn't about you. This is about God. This is about His power and His strength at work in you. And so we all have them. And we all have these kind of caution flags. Some of us would say, well, I'm just not gifted in that way. Well, you're commanded in that way. So you trust God to help you Lead someone to faith in him or trust God to help you help them walk to maturity or serve them so they understand the love of Christ. You're commanded and the Bible says you're empowered. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says the spirit of God, the one in residing in us is the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. So many just kind of throw that on the table. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. So Jesus is laying dead in the tomb. His body cold, bruised, beaten and lifeless. And it is the Spirit of God that raises him to life, transforms his body into a glorious one. That same Spirit with those same resources dwells in you. You're empowered to share the gospel with someone. I mean, this is the power that raises dead things to life. You want to tell me the He's not going to work in you to say something about Jesus to somebody? Like, resurrecting dead people is, is, is easy for him, but like, you opening your mouth about Jesus isn't? Come on. He's at work. Additionally, we would say, I'm just too messed up. Well, the first thing I'd say is, well, repent. Turn to God. The second thing I would tell you is, because you're struggling in one area doesn't give you the, a pass to sin in another. So because I haven't followed one command, I'm going to break another one. I'm not going to tell anyone about Jesus because I'm struggling in this area. But you've been commanded to do both. Don't, don't expound the unfaithfulness. Work on the one by the Spirit's power. Second, I would say, have you seen Paul? Like, do you know who this guy is? The guy who made it his life's mission to brutally beat, arrest, try, convict, and persecute Christians. This is the guy writing this. Whatever it is you've done is no match for the grace of God. And it is not just that he'll save you and forgive you. It's that he'll send his spirit to dwell in you and he will use you. You're not disqualified. Spirit of God is present. He is the one who is qualified. Finally, as we close, I want you to just look with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. 
Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. His power at work in us will do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. It's unimaginable what God can do in and through us. So he can do more than we can even think of asking. So pray big. Pray for God to radically transform your family. Pray for God to radically transform your street. Pray for him to radically transform the city, the state, this country. Why? Because he's able to work in you to do it. Far more than you could think or ask. He's able to do You can trust him. He's present. His power is at work to give us the ability to love one another, to embrace the mission that he's called us to do and walk faithfully with him. And this is the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it's not about us. It's about Jesus and his love for us and God and his power to save us and the spirit's power at work in us. This isn't about us. Will you trust him? Will you step out in faith? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who loves the unlovable, who calls the unqualified, and who empowers the weak. Lord, I pray that we would walk in step with your spirit, that we would enjoy and appreciate your presence with us, and that you would do far more in us than we could think or ask according to your abundant power at work within us. Lord, I pray that those of us who walk in kind of this uh, self-righteous sense of our own strength, that you would break us and humble us knowing that it is your work within us that has made every good thing happen. And for those of us who, who sense that we're just never going to be good enough, that we would just rest in that and say that that's not the gospel at all. That we would rest in your love and your grace to us that reminds us that it's your power and your love that has saved us. That it's your power and your love that will perfect us and your power and your love that will use us. We pray as we come before this table to again be reminded of the gospel. That your spirit would be at work in our hearts. In Jesus name. Amen.